mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Life had other ideas for me. So it was 2015, there was a lot in the news at the time about the refugee crisis in Europe. As recently as Wednesday, the Prime Minister said taking more refugees from the Middle East was not the answer. If we want to learn more about the world and about business and about all these things that can kind of better ourselves, then we should be doing more to be learning about things that we can really do to help other people too. It changed my life, Grace. The world kind of isn't built in any way for anything other than people who are born into a country that is welcoming to them just because they won essentially a genetic lottery. The reality of the situation there was so different from the media portrayal of it and the people that I met were so heroic in what they'd been through and they said to me something that I'll never forget. It immediately made me realise that there was something really wrong happening here. guys and welcome to another episode of working hard hardly working the podcast today's episode is a little bit different and i'm really excited about it i'm talking to jazz o'hara she has a huge amount to share and a huge amount that usually kind of goes unheard about refugees and people who are seeking asylum and i really wanted to talk to her today to be able to not just kind of raise awareness around the backwardness of the whole asylum seeking and refugee kind of system within the UK and around a lot of the world, but also to be able to kind of listen to her incredible story and the stories that she's been able to tell through her work and her activism. It's truly incredible. And I think that everyone can learn a lot from this episode in terms of her journey, in terms of what she's been through, in terms of what her family has been through. And I think that if we want to learn more about the world and about business and about all these things that can kind of better ourselves, then we should be doing more to help other people too. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I think that there's a lot of really poignant pieces of kind of information here. And I'm honestly so grateful for Jazz for coming on and really sharing the truth of the situation with us. Human rights activist, TEDx and United Nations speaker and podcaster Jazz O'Hara is the founder of the Worldwide Tribe, an organization and online community supporting refugees and asylum seekers globally. Jazz was working in the fashion industry in London when her parents adopted her younger brother, Mez, from Eritrea in 2015. One day, after queuing in a bank and hearing a group of women talking negatively about refugees within the Calais jungle, feeling very defensive of her new little brother, Jazz made the decision to go to Calais herself to get the first-hand experience of what the people who lived there were going through. What she found there would go on to change the course of her life forever. The Worldwide Tribe was born from a life-changing Facebook post Jazz wrote following this trip. Her authentic account went viral, raising £200,000, reaching over 13 million people and sparking the collection of physical donations by the tonne. Since then, Jazz had worked tirelessly in refugee camps across Europe and the Middle East, telling the stories that too often go unheard and raising the vital awareness needed about the biggest humanitarian crisis of our lifetime. 
Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Very excited to get into this. I've read a lot about your story and what you've done and everything. And for people who don't know, could you give us a little whistle-stop tour of your career slash your work so far? So my background is in ethical fashion. That's why it's very lovely to meet you. And I always thought that that was going to be my kind of purpose and what would be my life, I guess. That's what I, I studied and what I was very into. But life had other ideas for me. And it was almost seven years ago, which is mad to say, that um, I had quite a life-changing experience and a life-changing moment so it was 2015 and if you cast your mind back to that time I think there was a lot in the news at the time about the refugee crisis in Europe and I didn't really know anything about migration or refugees or asylum at the time but I did know that my mum and dad were at the time going through the process of looking into fostering or adoption because my youngest biological brother, so there was always four of us at home. I had two, two boys and two girls in my family. Um, so it was always a big family. And then my youngest brother was moving out. And I think my mum and dad just had this fear of like having no kids at home. So they were looking into like what their options might be. And they were quite happy to take on an older child and to take on a child that didn't speak English. Um, and they quite soon learned that there was a real need for foster families of unaccompanied children mm -hmm. coming via the Calais jungle, which is that notorious refugee camp in northern France that was like in the news a lot at the time. So they live in Kent in the south of the UK. And I think that, yeah, that particular council was dealing with a lot of young people, a lot of young refugees arriving and they, um, they needed families. And my mum and dad were open to that. So I guess I had this kind of personal interest in where my new brother or sister might be coming from and why they might have left their country. And at the time, I think I understood or my understanding of the refugee crisis was there's a war in Syria and mm -hmm. the people were leaving from Syria. But that was kind of the extent of it. Mm -hmm. So I basically had a curiosity and that was like really I think the driving force was that I wanted to know more and I wasn't finding out what I wanted to know in in the news in our mainstream media I was reading a lot of negativity and a lot of kind of dehumanizing stuff but I was thinking about my little brother or sister that was gonna join my family and so I basically decided quite spontaneously I remember I had a Tuesday off work before going to a trade show on the Wednesday and I was like I'm going to go to Calais. I'm going to just find out like very naively, but like see what I can find out for myself. So I packed up my car with like a few bits that I thought people might need. You were going on that day? No, this was on the, on the weekend. I decided I was going to say, I was like, you were spontaneous. I mean, it was still spontaneous, but like not like waking up yeah. today, like, fuck it, go today. Okay. Almost, <laughs> almost. But I was like, oh, I'm off on Tuesday. My mum and dad don't live that far away. I was living in London at the time. You can be mm. there in two hours. So yeah, I put some stuff in the back of my car. Like I went, I remember my friend um, runs a restaurant and had like a booker card. So I was like, oh, I'll just go and get some like food. And I had no idea what people would need. I, honestly, like I look back now and I'm like, yeah, that's mad that I, I did it like that. And uh, so I, I drove there and I went and it changed my life, Grace. Honestly, the reality of the situation there was so different from the media portrayal of it. And the people that I met were so heroic in what they'd been through that it immediately 
made me realize that there was something really wrong happening here, the way that we are demonizing these stories and these people. Um, So I met a lot of incredible people that day. I wrote about that first trip on Facebook at the time, basically saying that I wanted to go to the camp again and that people needed warm clothing. They were cold and they were like hungry during the day. And uh, that post ended up going really viral (laughs) within like the next 24 hours. I'm cutting a long story short here. And we raised a lot of money. Uh, It was just givings at the time, their biggest crowdfunding campaign ever, which is mad as well. Again, this is seven years ago. Um, So that was overwhelming. And uh, I didn't really know what to do with this money. So I started spending more and more time in Calais and really trying to work out how best to utilize that working alongside the people in the camp that I was meeting and forming friendships with and that was really the start of what is now known as the worldwide tribe I guess a community an online community an organization that we have that supports refugees in lots of different ways it's developed a lot over the years so it's now really focused on awareness and advocacy and we do our best to really challenge that negative narrative or that stigma that we still see in our news And yeah, seven years down the line, I now have four foster brothers. Three of them still live with my mum and dad, and one of them is studying in London. And they're from four different countries, from Eritrea, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Libya. And they're my reason for continuing doing what I'm doing every day. They inspire me to do what I do. And before we get into kind of, you know, your career and how that's been since that point, how has the process been um, from a personal point of view, having four brand new brothers and getting to know people. And as you, as you said, you know, they didn't necessarily need to speak English. That wasn't mm-hmm. a condition that your parents were kind of interested in. Just from a personal point of view, I'm really interested in kind of how that development of that relationship has been. Yeah, I mean, of course, each of them is different. And each time it's been different. But I I'm being really honest in saying that like it's been such a like mutually beautiful experience all round. I think for my family as well, the original uh, family, we have learned so much and it's been so enriching. Um, Mm. And yeah, I think that like we've gained more than we could like ever Mm. give in the relationship from the boys being in the family. But of course it's, been difficult and it's had its ups and downs and they had to go to our local comprehensive school and they didn't speak English and you know there was a lot of again like misunderstanding yeah. around their stories and what they've been through and all four of them have been through a lot like stories that you would never believe and things that are so difficult for your average like 14 15 mm. year old at school to even kind of comprehend I guess that like you know this kid has come from Eritrea without a passport that he's traveled through all of those countries and across the Sahara and across the Mediterranean and lived in the Calais jungle and hidden underneath the Eurotunnel train to get to the UK without a passport without any documentation without his birth certificate like you know it makes me think about my first brother Mez really wanted to join a football team when he Mm. came to the UK. He really loved football and he wanted to meet people and he couldn't play for the under 15s because he had no proof that he was under 15. And that is quite an example of the way that their story has been throughout these years is it's kind of guilty until proven innocent in a way Mm. that like our justice system isn't like that, but our asylum system very much is. 
and the, and the world kind of isn't built in any way for anything other than people who are born into a country that is free and democratic and mm-hmm. um you know welcoming to them just because they won essentially a genetic lottery to be able to be born in a certain place that's it and that blows my mind and that's something that I really want to challenge as well is that why do we feel this self-righteousness as soon as we left to to have been given something that we didn't necessarily do anything for or deserve right and like I can only relate it to like I was thinking about it because I was on a flight recently as well and I know that you just got back yesterday and it's like, you know, when you're appointed a seat on an yeah. airline and you get the aisle seat and like if someone from the middle seat wanted to swap with you, you'd be like, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> but you haven't necessarily done any, anything to like deserve that aisle seat. But like suddenly you feel like you have this ownership of something. And that's the feeling that I get very much from people here in the UK often that confuses me because yeah. it's like, yeah, surely we're all worthy or uh, of having safety and security mm. surely we all, we all deserve to have those same basic needs covered and it's a kind of entitlement that we don't expect or we don't even think about as the people who are in, like entitled though I'm sure the second that was threatened for ourselves the instant that happened, we'd kind of feel like, but I deserve this. Mm-hmm. Like, I have a right to this. Like, we talk a lot about like, oh, but you have a right to feel that way. You have a right to this. And and actually, why on earth would some, would I just because I was born? I mean, there are obviously, even when you think about the UK, anyone in the UK, there'll still be huge disparities between the way and what people are born into. But then taking it even further than that and saying, actually you know, even being here, even being able to exist as a woman or as whatever whatever it kind of might be. It's an entitlement that we almost develop from birth. And I guess it's, it's kind of part of a survival instinct because, you know, there's a reason why these scaremongering policies work so well is it's this kind of defense mechanism that we believe that we're entitled to something more, which is exactly why we don't want X, Y, and Z to steal our jobs because we have a right to that first. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting that we're almost born with that. It's kind of inherent in our privilege. It's definitely very ingrained. And you're right that like we're working here to unpick years of conditioning, Mm. a lifetime of conditioning that, yeah, is very difficult because we have, I think, in the West, you're absolutely right, been conditioned to feel that way. And it's a difficult thing to challenge, for sure. The fact is that, it's not even that our way of life is being threatened. And that's another thing that I feel is really important to raise is that we're talking about a small group of vulnerable people here that are making their way to the UK specifically. You know, most refugees are hosted in countries neighbouring their country. Uh, Turkey has the most refugees in the world. Lebanon, a quarter of their population are refugees. And in the UK, it's like 0.01% or something tiny. It's like, I often ask people here, do you know anyone from Afghanistan? Do you know anyone from Syria? How do you feel that your life is being impacted Mm. by welcoming people who are fleeing atrocities? And it's kind of this survival mechanism or this kind of defence mechanism that we have that is so incredibly outdated because if you think of the fact that actually, okay, way back when, when actually if you weren't okay because people were living in very different living conditions and, Mm -hmm. you know, there will be obviously huge disparities in terms of people's living standards now, 
when you look at back then when there was really a huge difference between royalty and aristocracy versus, you know, people who weren't able to, you know, live in any kind of standard that we'd recognise today, there was this, well, I need to be fine because otherwise I'll be pushed down that food chain. And actually, of course, that still exists in terms of disparities, but actually as a whole, someone fleeing Afghanistan, being in this country, or however many people, thousands of people, would still not threaten your standard of living. Or even the opposite. Like, it's been proven to show that refugees add to our Mm. economy, that they build our economy, that they are resilient. And like all of the things that you would look for in an employee, I feel like just by making that journey and being so resourceful and that courage and that drive is one of the most, I mean, incredible skill sets that I've ever seen. Like my four brothers, to do that before the ages of 15 just blows my mind. When you look at your average 15-year-old here in the UK, I can't imagine that they would be able to make that journey. It's I've, I, what I find really interesting about that is the the stories that people go through um, when seeking asylum or when escaping from a country and becoming a refugee is the exact type of story that we'd herald as completely heroic. It's the exact type of story that makes people's success deemed that much more amazing, if that makes sense. So on social uh-huh. media, in terms of like, an American college essay in terms of like all of these types of things. That is the type of thing that would be like, wow, you know, you're so great. The second it is from someone who is, you know, either often not white or not from the Western world or fleeing somewhere that you now don't think that they have a right to be in this country because they weren't born here. It's seen as like lesser than and kind of something we don't really want to think about and all Mm -hmm. of that. And how strange is that difference in perception between those two things purely just because someone's not from something you recognise. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's become really apparent in the last couple of months with everything that's been happening in Ukraine, Mm -hmm. that the response to refugees or people fleeing Ukraine has been so globally different than I've seen for people fleeing Syria or Mm -hmm. Afghanistan. And that's really heartbreaking to kind of unpick because what really else could be the reason, you know? And of course, you know, I would never want to undermine or diminish like how important it is for that response to Ukrainians. I've just been on the Poland-Ukraine border um, in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, absolutely that response is valid and necessary. But it just shows me that like we are able to resettle people quickly. We are able to put these programs and practices in place and we need to do that across the board. Mm. Yeah, I saw the other day the Eurostar offering free tickets or whatever and border waving, waving kind of passports and all of this. And you're kind of thinking, okay, like this is fantastic. Great proof that we've mobilized but Ukraine isn't anywhere near the only place right now that is having that exact thing happen. Exactly. And how can we actually look at that and think it's acceptable not to copy and paste those policies in order to be able to open that up to people whose countries have been experiencing this for Mm. long periods of time? It's not one or the other. It's clearly not. I mean, you kind of think about it and it looks at it and it's like, is this just PR? Is this just self-serving, like, well done us? This is you know, whenever there's a big tragedy, but it's the one that's heard about most, you want to be seen to be helping it rather Mm -hmm. than helping things under the radar. 
it seems absolutely insane. No, you're you're absolutely right. And, you know, I met two Syrians on this trip that I've just been on for the last couple of months on the uh, Turkish-Syria border Mm. in Turkey. And they had been through this mad experience where they'd actually left Syria traveled through Turkey and crossed the Mediterranean to get to Greece. So they'd made it into Europe and they're artists, they're amazing painters, they're fine Mm. artists. And uh, they got to Greece and then they were deported. Their asylum claims were not accepted or heard back into the hands of the regime in Syria where they were tortured and spent years in in prison. And then they, they just escaped and got to Turkey when I'd met them. And they said to me, something that I'll never forget when the war broke out in Ukraine. And he said to me, why doesn't Europe want us? You know, like, what what did we do wrong? And I think that's it, you know, it's that feeling of, like, people that are so forgotten about and put to the back of the pile and not considered in the same way or their lives not seen as valuable as white Europeans. Mm. Yeah, which is... um incredibly profound and also just one of those things that when you really think about it it just does not make a single bit of sense other than when you think of it as being self-serving and Mm. racist (laughs) and kind of following on from that point in terms of your journey as a whole after going to Calais you decided to change your career how did that happen how quickly did that happen how did you make those moves yeah, good question. And like, <laughs> I look back now and I'm like, I don't know. It yeah. just kind of overwhelmed me. It was like after I'd been there, I couldn't concentrate on anything else. I worked for an underwear brand and I was like designing prints and just being like, I can't get this out of my head. Mm. You know, it was this kind of unfolding crisis that was like happening on our doorstep in a way that I felt like we hadn't seen before and or I definitely hadn't experienced or seen before. And I just, I couldn't concentrate. You just know that like that's what you want to put your energy into and that's what's like buzzing you up and that's the only thing that's like holding your attention so I guess I just decided to follow that and started trying to juggle as much as I could going to Calais on the weekends and like roping in friends and hiring vans and warehouses across London and having donation drop-off days and trying to coordinate like a logistical nightmare of like physical stuff getting into Calais I just felt like all of the time that I was using on my like working hours and I don't mean to encourage like I often give talks in schools and universities and I'm like shit am I encouraging people to just like quit their job yeah and, uh, <laughs> I often think that for far less noble reasons <laughs> and I'm like, yeah actually I kind of am because if you feel that I think that sometimes life presents you with something that you can either kind of grasp and mm. be like okay well I'm gonna roll with this and see what happens and it was a gamble because My eldest biological brother at the time, we were living in London and we moved back home with our mum and dad. And within a few weeks, my first foster brother, Mez, joined the family. So it was like all happening at the same time that my mum and dad were worried about having no kids at home anymore. And suddenly they all moved back home and (laughs) Mez as well and a house full. And I remember that summer because it was the summer of 2015. My brother had set up a tent in our garden because there was no bedrooms in the house and uh, we were kind of just spending as much time as we could in Calais and then both me and my brother quit our jobs he worked in advertising and uh, yeah I think we just it was kind of unavoidable we were like we'll figure it out yeah something will happen and seven years later we're still doing it 
which is mad. He now runs an organization called Jangala, which was one of our first projects in the camp. So again, this was a tricky one to sell because we realized when we got there that, of course, tents, sleeping bags, warm clothing, lots of those things were really, really key uh, and, and covering people's basic needs. But also lots of people were asking us about uh, whether they could borrow our phones or our chargers, right? right? That like same as if you or I were like in that situation, people wanted to stay in contact with their family or have access to information about like their asylum claims. And the land that the Calais jungle was on was this kind of forgotten piece of land with asbestos in the ground and like it didn't belong to anyone and it was far out of the town and Mm -hmm. it didn't have much signal. So we kind of let people use our phones and then I think we realised that there was only a certain amount of times we could let people phone Eritrea before we were going to have like serious phone bills. So basically my brother was like, right, let's do something about that. Let's set up a Wi-Fi network in the jungle. I think there was even like a Daily Mail article about it at the time that was like, Wi-Fi in the Calais jungle. It's like a holiday camp or something mad right, like that. <laughs> yeah, because that's what makes a holiday. Yeah, exactly. I'll be honest and say that before I went to Calais, I'd never met someone that identified or fit into that category yeah. of refugee. Um, and it's still not like a term that I like particularly use that much because as you say we're just talking about people and it's something that happens to you and it's circumstances that happen in the country that you were born in that you can't do anything about so yeah so to cut a long story short again we set up the first wi-fi network in the calais jungle and we called it jangala after the jungle and it was very popular and was we were very popular when it was working uh, (laughs) but not so popular when it wasn't and um yeah so we 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 kind of navigated that again like finding people someone who knew someone who knew someone who Mm. would know how to do that and uh, using this like amazing community that was growing online. And that now exists as an organization in its own right, Jangala Wi-Fi. They create Wi-Fi boxes that operate all over the world. They're kind of self-sustained mm. and they can connect up to a thousand users at a time. Amazing. And they're built for this kind of environment, refugee mm. camp settings or informal settlements. And yeah, my, that's what my brother still does. So somehow, seven years later, we're still here. <laughs> and, and when you decided to um, quit your job and you just decided, you know, we're going to make this work, what was the initial kind of plan in terms of what you were making work? Was it general, just help where we can? Was it was there kind of one big goal? I think on the gr- boots on the ground at the beginning was like our main focus mm-hmm. that we were like, okay, this situation is not okay, yeah. this camp. It should, it, you know, like the, the way that people were living there and there was such a kind of, pressing initial need at the time but then the landscape changed quite a lot you know more and more people started coming from the UK and other amazing organizations grassroots organizations and individuals started Mm -hmm. to come and like meet certain needs like refugee community kitchen doing food and choose love doing a build project Mm. and care for Calais and lots of people kind of meeting certain needs and over time I I started to really realize where my skills were best used in this space. And I realized that like 
as many tents or sleeping bags that we distribute in this camp, the camp shouldn't be there in the first mm, place. Right. No one should be living sure. like that in the first place. So how do we get to the root of the problem? And I really realised that there was like an educational need in the host countries and places like the UK. There was like a gap between what people believed and mm. the reality of like my brother's stories. Yeah. And there's an example of that that I remember really well. I was in the bank in my mum and dad's little town in in Kent and I was standing behind these two women that were talking about Calais and they were saying oh it's so dangerous you know migrants running around with knives and I remember that line really well because it was like really near the beginning and I remember like not having the words to like butt in and be like yeah that's not true but it stuck with me and I felt like there were a lot of people like those women in the bank and a lot of people like my little brother Mez. And knowing what you know now, what would you say the biggest misconceptions are about refugees? Good question. And the podcast series that we're putting out next is really looking to kind of tackle Mm. some of those misconceptions. So I think a lot of the things that we hear on social media are things like, well, why don't refugees stay in the first safe country or um, that refugees are poor, that they're coming here for economic reasons, that they're coming for jobs or mm-hmm. that they're coming for something other than safety, although the term refugee like actually means safety or asylum mm-hmm. seeker. That's something that I think, again, we've like, it's a clever, it's very clever that somehow we've managed to, or the media has managed to separate this like meaning, this meaning of the word, like asylum seeker, someone who's like seeking safety. We seem to have forgotten the meaning of that, seems to have got lost somewhere along the way. But yeah, I think uh, that refugees are all men, um, that they should stay and fight. (laughs) These are the kind of things that I often see kind of come up and they're the kind of questions or themes that we're trying to really speak to in our podcast series so it's called asylum speakers and we hear from people with lived experience and uh, we've just filmed and recorded the next season which Mm. is called the journey and we followed common routes taken by refugees and asylum seekers from north africa and the middle east so from the syrian border all the way back to the uk and whilst we were recording this everything Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com happened in Ukraine so we shifted up our route and went more east than we planned and included the Ukrainian border and that migration route from Ukraine and the aim really is of our podcast is to speak to some of these questions and misconceptions Mm. and be like okay 
why don't refugees stay in the first safe country? Well, let's look at what life looks like for refugees in Turkey, in Lebanon, <clears throat> in these neighbouring countries to Syria, in, in Egypt, you know, the first stop for a lot of East African refugees. And let's look at their lives there and why it's not safe for them. And I think, again, that's a common misconception that somewhere that's safe for us, like France, for you're example. Like going on holiday. Yeah. Or... <laughs> is, if you're going on holiday, if you're going for a romantic weekend in Paris, of course it's safe for, yeah. for you or I. And that's what I often ask people to try to do, is to look beyond your own personal mm. experience that might be very different if you're a refugee. For sure. And I guess it raises that question as well of kind of we... We expect that because people have been fleeing war or, you know, regimes or whatever it might be, they don't have the right to go for what they want. They have the right to settle for the next best mm -hmm. option. And like at the same time as it's like, you know, thinking, well, why do you want to move to Australia? Why do you want to move to... Because something is ticking someone's basic needs, that does not mean that as a human being, in the same way as it does not mean, you know, you need to stay in the UK or you need to stay whatever it's this kind of idea that actually well you've had it bad so you can just have it a little bit less bad just because in our heads we can't is that not being able to compute well if it was really that bad you'd be fine with x y and z and actually like sure yeah great that I'm not getting killed like that's <laughs> that's so nice fantastic thank you but actually allowing this idea that okay well if we have space which we do if we have jobs, which we do, especially, you know, for example, like a doctor, like it's no, mm -hmm. it's no more, you know, no more worthy than anyone, you know, coming. But for example, you, you would let that person save your life. So why the fuck do you think that people, yeah, they could settle in the first country, but like, why, why does that, why is that any better for you? Yeah, well said, mate. I totally agree. And I couldn't agree more that like people still have autonomy over mm. their own lives and they still have family members and they still have wants and needs and goals and dreams. Of course. And if those can't be realised, like, yeah, maybe you're not living in a war zone, but you still might be fearing deportation to a war zone mm -hmm. or you still might not be able to work or study or pay rent or open a bank account in these first safe countries. And so... Is that, yeah, you you might not be in fear of imminent death, but is that what life is about? Mm. Is that a good enough life for anybody? Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the kind of process of seeking asylum, I've heard a lot about just how backwards it is and just how little it makes sense. For people who don't know about kind of the process, would you be able to shine a bit of light on kind of what it involves when a refugee might want to seek asylum? Yeah, of course. And that's another good misconception that I've just remembered is like people should come here legally. Mm -hmm. And that's the issue is that there are not currently legal routes set up for people from certain countries like Eritrea or Sudan mm. there is not an option for them to come legally there's not a visa office in their country that they can go to and like put their pay documents down and like fill in some yeah. forms and wait for a flight like it unfortunately it, it doesn't work like that otherwise people definitely would do yeah, that yeah people don't want to <laughs> at, at no point do people want to be hiding under a train no like it's, exactly it's, it's not a choice and I think you know like any parents listening to this for example like would recognise that you would do what you have to do for your kids, right? That, like, uh, you know, if you are leaving with your family or 
we all have that in us to like, you know, do what we need to do or do what we have to do to like survive. But yeah, I think the asylum process in the UK, again, is something that there's a lot of like misunderstanding around. So if I give you an example of my little brother, Mez, or maybe I'll talk to you about my Afghan brother, because maybe that's more, uh, people will know a little bit more about what's happening in Afghanistan recently. If you're like me, I'd never heard of Eritrea before I met Mez, um, before he joined my family, but they have a dictatorship and compulsory military service um, and they use child soldiers and that's why he fled. But anyway, all four of my brothers have a very legitimate claim for asylum. Um, But my Afghan brother, his family were killed by the Taliban. He fled uh, Afghanistan when he was 13. He crossed the Mediterranean, Uh, his boat capsized. It's It's a mad story. He finally makes it to the UK and he seeks asylum and so you basically go for a rigorous interview and they basically try and prove that you're not telling the truth they look for holes and and inconsistencies so because he didn't know the exact dates that the Taliban had killed his family there was insufficient evidence and his claim was denied right so then he was given a date where he would be deported to Kabul and This is fucking wild, right? Because, like, this is a teenage boy who lives in a family who love him by this point because also this process takes years. So going for the interview and getting your response, you're living in that limbo for up to, like, two years. So by this point, he's learned English. He goes to our local school. He's part of our family and very very much so my mum and dad would want to adopt him and look after him and like have him yeah. and also taking on full responsibility for that yeah like, 100% you like, cannot imagine that this is actually taking anything away from the UK absolutely I mean, like, my mum and dad are like you, we do not need a penny from <laughs> yeah. the government for this okay so uh He's loved, he's in a family unit, he's happy, he's starting to thrive, he's starting to get over some of that trauma and some of the things that he's experienced and PTSD. And then he gets a letter saying, you're going to be deported to Kabul on this date, on your 16th birthday. And that sends him into like a spiral of, you know, anxiety and issues with his mental health because it brings back a lot of trauma and stress. And then we appealed it. In this time period, by the way, uh, that you're waiting for your first interview and then your response from the Home Office, um, you, as an adult, you can't work in that time. So you're in temporary accommodation. And some of that temporary accommodation is like the craziest thing I've seen. Like, for example, Napier Barracks down in the south of the UK. It's like an ex-military barracks that hasn't been used in like, I think it was built in hundreds of years ago and was due for demolition like a long time ago. Um, And there's been like fires there and it's just like not suitable for like habitation basically. So because he was under 18 or under 16, he was living in our family, he gets denied and uh, he has to appeal. And so we all go to court and my mum speaks in court and it's a long rigorous process and it's taking its toll on his mental health. And eventually he gets accepted and he gets the right to stay in the UK for five years. So that's the maximum that you can expect uh, when you seek asylum is five years, leave to remain. And that's if you are accepted. And then five years later, so this is starting to happen to my brothers now, you have to go through that process again. Fuck off. (laughs) So that's it, right? Like, all my mum's friends were like, 
what do, what do you mean he's seeking asylum again? Like, he's been living with you for years. And my mom's like, yeah, but it doesn't mean that then you're safe. Like, it doesn't mean that then you can't still be deported back. And that's the maximum anyone can ever... Just five years. Five years, and, and then you apply again, and then and you can apply for citizenship. But this whole thing takes ten years, you know? But, but the thing that seems insane about that, I mean, the many things that seem insane, but one of the big parts is surely that's incredibly heavy, like in terms of bureaucracy, in terms of the cost to the government, in terms of all, like, especially, like, obviously, in any situation, it, it doesn't make sense, but particularly if it's a child's, and they've been adopted into a family, that family has taken responsibility, which is, has, you know, they're paying more into the economy mm -hmm. for this child, they're feeding them, they're paying taxes, they're doing all of these things that you would do that, you know, a ch child is involved in. And then to go through that again, it seems not just unfair, it seems completely backward. It's wild. It's the same with this plan for Rwanda. The cost of, the cost of deporting somebody mm -hmm. is not just their flight back to their country, but also the two people that like sit either side of them on that flight and the paperwork. It's co It costs hundreds of thousands it's of pounds. It's more than putting them up in the ritz. For sure. And like, literally, if you invested that into integration, it, it would be such a different system. But then... And I don't, I don't suppose you have the answer for this. Why? Uh, <laughs> like, are them the reasons? I ask that must every be, day. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, that's the basis of everything. Kind of, you do. But in terms of the, you know, when businesses make decisions, for example, and they seem not to make sense, and then it's like, but because of this, or because of money saving, or because of that, mm -hmm. it seems that every single part of it. So contribution to the economy, money saving, all of this. To me, the only thing that could feasibly they genuinely believe makes sense would be because I know as well you pay taxes long before you would ever receive benefits and all of these various different things would be things like that they think are going to happen like genuine like risk of extremism or you know all of these mm. things that we that kind of fit in people's heads as this is why I wouldn't let this person into my house as it's like the the blanket things that you can be like this you know, this wouldn't make sense because surely, I mean, it's not even like, I mean, we get free free healthcare, sure. We don't get free higher education. We don't get, you know, apprenticeships, all of this we need to pay for. So surely those people would be contributing more than they'd be taking away from yeah. the economy. I, I recognise, yeah, exactly that. And I see examples of that on a daily basis. So I think where it comes from is to perpetuate this narrative of, you know, let's demonise this small group of mm. people to distract to uh take away from to also kind of play into this narrative that like a lot of people that fed like brexit you know yeah. like there is that it's going back to what we were talking about earlier like to feed into those kind of fears that people have that like low level fear that we see as a society to play on that so essentially it being any anti-immigration stuff being quite popular policies with certain groups of people and therefore it just being a card that can be played. I mean, it's very scapegoaty. It reminds me mm. of other things from history. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Aren't exactly comfortable. Yeah, I know. And it's, it is scary to see that and to think about it like that. And yeah, I guess that's really underpinning the work that we're trying to do constantly mm. is to just try to amplify these positive, beautiful 
uh, stories and people and experiences of, yeah, firsthand. I think that, like, if you haven't met anybody from a certain group or a certain demographic, it's hard to relate. So I think that what we are really constantly trying to do is to, you know, Mez comes and gives a lot of talks in schools and universities with me. And I really recognise that like students, when they meet him and they hear his story firsthand and they see themselves in him, they're like, okay, now when I read that headline, Mm. I'm going to think about him. I'm going to picture him. I'm going to have his face in my mind. And that's going to disrupt that dehumanization that we are seeing and feeling so i guess part of your activism then as well is how do we do that on a wider scale because Mm -hmm. if you know if when people see reality the reality of it all they understand and they try and do more you know if it's a popular policy to put in place so that it wins votes how do we make it an unpopular policy to put in place aka by human by Mm -hmm. you know rehumanizing and be and by sharing stories as you do how as part of your kind of activism as a whole is that about putting that on a wider scale storytelling I feel is really at the core of this Mm -hmm. and doing so effectively and getting that out into our pop culture into films and podcasts and yes I feel that there has been movement and change and shift and it depends on like you know what is happening topically but you know I think we all probably remember all of those years ago now when we saw those pictures of Alan Curdy, the little boy who washed up on the beach mm-hmm. and how much that shifted the narrative, even in those mainstream media, like those newspapers that were speaking very differently a few weeks or days before. Suddenly, I think people felt compassion mm-hmm. and that they saw their own kids or neighbours or grandchildren in this innocent boy and so stories I think are really really important and amplifying those and we do that in lots of different ways whether that be person to person so actually having opportunities for people like Mez and other Mm. people with lived experience who have been on the podcast to share their story firsthand uh, in events or in the education space but also online so through the podcast, through social media, we try and use as many kind of creative ways to tell the same story in, in mm. new, innovative, um, interesting ways as possible. For sure. And I want to talk a little bit about your kind of life and career now as an activist. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what people will find really interesting is the fact that actually it's not a purpose that you kind of had from when you were 10 that you you realised and you thought, great, I need to pursue this. You'd gone through the education system, you'd gone through higher education, you decided to be a fashion buyer Mm -hmm. and that's what you were doing and then this is something you discovered. In terms of that kind of discovery and knowing that it was time to take a leap of faith, what would you say to someone who's kind of had that moment and said, do you know what, I I don't want to go to work tomorrow and do this, I want to do X, Y and Z. You know, I think that we spend a lot of time in our heads busy with like logic and reason and I'm very guilty of that myself and the only things for me that I look back on in my life and feel like fuck I'm so glad I made that decision was when I Mm. listened to that like deep instinctual gut feeling and it's hard to do it's hard to like get rid of all the noise and tap into like okay is this 
fear or is this like, you know, separating, like, is this telling me not to do this or is this just fear? Like, what is deeper? What is, what, and I always ask myself, what would Jazz in five years time tell Jazz now to do? And, or I ask myself, like, what would I do if I didn't have fear around this? Mm. Um, And they're like two of the questions that like, just try and like reconnect me to that instinctual feeling, Mm. which I think is, very often drowned out and very often the quieter thing yeah no absolutely and I think it's very I mean it's really brave but also I've heard it said it a lot of the times where it's kind of like it's actually brave and you know it's scary and not to listen yeah it's exactly like I hear exactly what you're saying that like yes listening to it is scary but a lifetime of not listening to it that's scarier to me that's terrifying yeah and Your day-to-day as an activist and as someone who deals with something that's really, really profound and important must be really taxing on your mental health as well. How do you deal with that? And how, you know, how do you keep going when every single day you'll see something that's like another bit of misinformation Mm -hmm. or, you know, something that seemingly kind of is trying to discount everything you're doing? But then every single day I also meet the most incredibly resilient heroic people that are so inspirational to me and I feel like if they can do that I can do this do you know what I mean like if my brothers can do that I can the least I can do is this Mm. yeah (laughs) but yeah you're you're so right in that of course like I feel like I'm quite a natural empath and I always had I went in quite open and I've learned to put some boundaries in place because I did get to the point after like a year of working in Calais where it was Christmas I remember it really well because we were kind of sitting around my mum and dad's dining table celebrating and the way that we always would with like this feast in front of us but I had changed so much in that year and like seen so much and learned so much that I was different and kind of working through that was tough for me like I was kind of mm. mourning this like previous naive version of myself yeah. and the fact that like once you know you can't unknow yeah. right but I'm so grateful that I do know and I take that responsibility on board every single day to do my utmost to do justice to these stories that I now have the massive um privilege of hearing Absolutely. And do you mind me asking how you're able to kind of fund your activism? Yeah, of course. So again, that's been a constant hustle Mm -hmm. over the last seven years and a very difficult thing to navigate because we live in a society where I think if you are working as a kind of CEO or a founder of a business and you're making lots of money and you're not doing anything to help anybody, we celebrate that. Yeah. But if you're making lots of money and you're doing things to help people, that's not doesn't necessarily sit well with people right Mm -hmm. and I felt that very much at the beginning that I didn't want to be like making money from this but then I realized like but actually if I flip that and I I, I'm not looking at it taking I'm looking at like me giving my life to this then yeah I need to be able to like maintain that somehow so I give talks and in schools and at universities and in corporate settings and I charge a speaking fee Mm -hmm. and uh yeah that has actually been the way that I have managed to maintain what I'm doing over the last seven years work with brands over the years as well which has been really really great 
um, have sometimes come up. And now that we have a podcast, we have a couple of sponsors for the yeah. podcast, which is really exciting. So yeah, different ways and a constant hustle. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But before we move on from that, is there a way that people listening can support? Do you have a kind of Patreon or? Yes. So not a Patreon, but we do have several fundraisers so mm-hmm. on our social media so if you're coming through instagram we're at the worldwide tribe um then you can see different ways to support different projects um directly but also our podcast mm-hmm. to maintain that and keep that going so there are options for you and i always say to people like whether that be money or whether that be sharing a post yeah. or there is something that's accessible to everyone if you do feel this cause and you feel like it's something that you want to support there are varying degrees and levels in ways that you can do that I think that like you know how we were talking about before in terms of like you have to appeal to people's selfishness Mm -hmm. and part of people's for, for kind of people listening we were talking before the podcast in terms of like when you set up something for people to donate they want to be able to see exactly what they're donating it to Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily like to as much donate to like a whole it, it doesn't give them the selfish feel-good feeling when they donate to a whole charity versus like an exact project. But the thing is with that as well, I think as part of, and, and you need to be able to appeal to people's selfishness to be able to kind of like, yeah, sure, we'll give you this feel-good feeling. <laughs> Just give us, give us this money to do this. And I also think part of that is people are so used to being able to easily subscribe to things now. And part of their selfishness is, People are too lazy to keep Mm -hmm. visiting things and donating. Yeah, you want to make it easy for them. And also I feel, you know, with Patreon, a few people have mentioned this to me because it also appeals to that feeling of being part of something Mm -hmm. and maybe getting like early access to something or, you know, extra bonus like content. But I also very much want to maintain the fact like our information and our content and our stories are available to everybody and that they're free i reckon set it up with no extra content yeah yeah maybe 100 maybe you're right appeal to the appeal to the lazy people that are happy to like find a call because if someone like this is so this is very this is is great but i just feel that like if someone's listening to this today for example and is kind of really moved by this now they would happily some people would happily sign up to donate to that on a subscription for the Mm -hmm. next year. Whereas even if you're moved by something so much, we're in such a kind of privileged world that no matter how much I feel now, like I'm unashamed, well, I am ashamed to say, but you know, in in a month's time, you'll be thinking about something, reading about something, you'll turn the page. Like, and it's being able to hook people into that in a kind of, in the same way as you'll hook people, someone into so you know for example my business shreddy which is um one of our main parts is a fitness app and we want people to be able to essentially make a commitment to themselves on the long term and that Mm. includes it being subscription based and that we found it really helps keep people motivated because it's like this is sorted for you like the whole economy has moved to like subscription based things because we are so lazy and I just think that people should be able to be lazy and give things to you. Yeah, you're absolutely, you are absolutely right. And like you're making the cogs in my brain work because things have changed since we set up that initial just giving, you know, seven years ago. And like people were just kind of starting to crowdfund for things. And now you're absolutely right that like we have to move. And over the years, I, I recognize that too with how things are changing and developing and, um, how people receive content you know we used to put out a three-minute film on on Instagram or social media and people would watch it and now 
if it's longer than 15 seconds, people won't watch it, you know? And our attention spans are getting smaller and our ability to kind of take in that information, I think, is 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 getting less. Yeah. So yeah, we've got to make it super easy for people. Yeah, that that's the thing. And it's really, it's really like hard to even say because it's like, okay, but you're giving your life to be able to do this. And people, you know, do what your brothers have done and have been through insane journeys and and continuous trauma from even our government to just be like, oh yeah, you can live here. Just like all of these other people who happen to be born here Mm. and literally did nothing to deserve that. And actually, but at the same time, you look at people and you're like, okay, but that's the reality. Like someone will be moved by something one time and they need to have that like instantaneous ability to support by any of these things. I'm just interested Maybe in we can getting have you more money. A follow-up chat, yeah. Grace. A follow-up chat. You just give me some business coaching. <laughs> um, but in, in general then, how can people support you? By by listening to the podcast, by, mm-hmm. by following along with what you do? Yes. So the main way that I think is like easily accessible to everyone is starting these conversations and, and learning, educating yourself. That was the first step for me. That, like, As I say, I didn't know anything about Eritrea. I'd never heard of it before. Mare's joined my family. And I think there is so much information out there at our fingertips, like literally in the palm of our hand. And like we have made it easy with the podcast. It's called Asylum Speakers. and Very good name. Thank you. And uh, the first six seasons have generally had one person, for example, my little brother Mez has been on there sharing his story. He tells it much better than I do. It's a mind-blowing story. That's a good place to start, I think, is episode five. Um, But yeah, lots of incredible people talking about their stories and not just uh, refugees and asylum seekers, but also people working in this space who Mm. have really inspired me over the years. And then the next season goes live on World Refugee Day this year. So it's going to be a shameless plug, but it's the 20th of June uh, this year, World Refugee Day, and it's called The Journey, um, Asylum Speakers, The Journey, and it follows those common routes. So we actually did the journey and spoke to people along the way. And it really aims to speak to those questions that we were talking about before, those misconceptions and to answer, you know, we've all got that family member or friend or colleague who maybe says those things. The problematic uncle. The problematic (laughs) uncle. We've all got the problematic uncle and you want to be able to have the vocabulary or the words or the information to say like, actually, I heard this story and like, yeah, this is the case. Like what you're saying is not true (laughs) so yeah challenge that problematic uncle that is where where we can start removing our own kind of desensitization that we've all had I mean when you say as well like having not heard about Eritrea and then like talking about as well like the regime and child soldiers you think about that and like what's insane about that is that probably I know it doesn't for me and that is it's horrible it doesn't because you know these things happen and you've been able to be desensitized Mm -hmm. yourself from them you hear something like that, and until you actually think, okay, what does that entail? You think, oh, okay, that's really awful. But you don't, it, 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 in what world is that not something that is heart-wrenching? Imagine if you went to, you know, it's, the, it's Friday, right? And you're going out tonight. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you were chatting to someone British at the bar, chatting up a guy or he's chatting you up or whatever, and he tells you that he was that his his mum was murdered in front of him when he was two and then he went into the army at 13 and 
fought for a regime that he didn't believe in and was forced to either kill or be killed, you'd just be like, what the, what the yeah, fuck are you like, saying? Like, yeah, yeah, like he would be, that would define him as a person, right? Because you'd just be like, okay, like I've never heard anyone with like a crazier story than that. And some of the things that like I've heard people say firsthand, you're so right that like we almost are, are desensitized to it until until yeah. you meet Mez. Like I wish he was actually here with me today. Well, he because, should come on. Yeah, he should he, come he, on. Absolutely, I would love to <laughs> because meet him. he's amazing. And then that just like shifts everything for you. Like oh my god, like you lived that. Mm. You actually lived that. And now he's just living life as a teenage boy in England, playing football and going to mm. school and doing his A levels. As he and, should be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah, what he did to achieve that and to get there and to be able to he always says I wanted to hold a pen and not a gun you know and what he had to overcome to like have those same opportunities is wild and why is it so crazy to think that we should all have those same opportunities Mm, absolutely so just continuously desensitizing ourselves and pushing ourselves to actually really understand the realities kind of beyond yeah it's it's possible it's possible Grace like there is enough in the world like I totally believe in abundance like there is enough for all of us it's just we need to redistribute it (laughs) absolutely well thank you so much for coming on it has been incredibly interesting to hear about your story and your work um and I think that everyone who's listened to this will be incredibly moved by what you've done and what you continue to do and the stories that you've told so thank you thank you it's been an absolute pleasure Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com